Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast program of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Reagan Gill, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, and also the author of Visualizing Black Lives, Ownership and Control in Afro-Brazilian Media. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gillum. Thank you so much for having me, and please call me Reagan. Okay. Well, thank you, Reagan, for joining us today and taking some time out to discuss your exciting new book about race and media in Brazil, which continues to be a critically important subject at the moment. Yet most of the work on this topic tends to focus on Blackness and media in North America. So first, we will discuss Reagan's research and teaching background, and then we will discuss her book, Visualizing Black Lives. So Reagan, tell us a little bit about uh, your education, research, and uh, teaching interest. Yeah, thank you so much for that that question. Um, So... My um, education, I guess, I studied anthropology and African-American studies at the University of Virginia as an undergraduate, and I earned my PhD in anthropology from Cornell University. And it was, it was there that I would develop the, you know, the research for this, uh, for this book. And it was at University of Virginia where I actually started to study Kind of Afro Latin America, where I took classes on uh, race, like hi- the history of race and ethnicity in Latin America, with Professor Brian Brian Owensby, and um, classes on Brazil um, as well. So that's where I I was introduced to these topics, and then I followed up with diving into them more deeply at Cornell. But I also really credit my uh, intellectual formation to my parents for instilling in me an interest in Black life and history and culture. When I was younger, my dad would make me read uh, Richard Wright's Black Boy and the Autobiography of Malcolm X in like graduates in uh, middle school, I'm sorry. And then, you know, in high school, I remember reading, you know, Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And so, and this was pretty constant within my, uh, as I was growing up and, you know, having to do reports on different, you know, historical black figures going to museums and exhibitions and just learning about black history, you know, with my parents. And so this was all kind of outside of school. None of this was assigned as part of my, you know, as part of my formal schooling, I guess. And so I think that it was really there that, you know, nurtured this, this interest in me to really dive more deeply into the lives of people of African descent. And so for my research, I'm interested in, in black life history and culture, but in Brazil, and I am specifically uh, looking at kind of how racial dynamics and racism operates in Brazil and how Afro-Brazilians challenge racism and navigate their social system, which I think we'll talk about later. And I look at specifically media as a site to understand how mainstream images of Black people and then also alternative images produced by Black people, um, how these contest and maintain racism in Brazil. So I'm glad you brought up this into the conversation, you know, your journey into study this topic, you know, in terms of your parents. I, I remember my introduction to black history first came from my parents and certainly teaching me about, you know, the history of not only our family, but African-American culture in North America. But this leads us to my next question about anthropology, why study anthropology, but also, you know, what is your definition of anthropology? I think people get romantic notions of this discipline, maybe from film, and it is related to your larger research discussion of media. I think Indiana Jones, and I think students might still come to it thinking, oh, well, I want to be this guy. 
you know, because they, they access the idea of what is anthropology. Sometimes I think through film, anthropology and archaeology. So, so give us your working definition of the term anthropology. I mean, because even when I was an undergraduate, I probably had no idea what anthropology was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew what history was, right? One of the standard disciplines that we all take in K through 12. Yes, thank you. Um, you are absolutely correct about that. Um, I like that, the image of, of anthropology and how that needs to also be probably made more made more complex and you know, have, have a little bit more attention onto it. And, um, and you're correct too about the archeology span and the Indiana Jones. I had a, had friends in graduate school who were teaching classes in archeology span and they said many of the students came with this image kind of of Indiana Jones in their mind. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so yeah, that absolutely. Um, and that's not a bad thing to, you know, bring people in and then, you know, give them kind of more of, you know, what we sort of actually do um, in the in the discipline. So I came to study anthropology uh, kind of during like a high school summer program. That's where I was sort of introduced to what anthropology is, because you're right. I had never also heard of anthropology. Um, and so I was attending a summer program on international relations at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And, um, and like I said, I was a high school student. It was just a couple week long summer program. And uh, th- the sessions were kind of focused on like international relations and international diplomacy. And I thought, you know, I'm interested in that. I'd like to I, I had this interest in, I don't know, international life and living abroad and and things like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, I could maybe try to work in like, you know, in a a diplomat's office or or some such thing. Um, I, you know, I wasn't really sure, but they had, I remember sort of becoming less interested in that in international relations as, as the program went on, but they had two anthropologists come and give a lecture and they were talking about like cultural difference and, and the things that they were saying really sparked my interest. And I also remember being in a session with, with other students, we would have these little class sessions. And I remember the stu- other students talking about doing some sort of international mission or something in order to like civilize the people there, you know, where they were going. And I remember kind of speaking up and saying like, well, why, why would we need to do that? Like, why can't, why can't they, you know, live have, how they've been living? Like, why, why would that be the mission? And so I, and so I just recall that moment as a initial kind of spark that I had where, you know, I think I was sort of possibly dispo- in a way disposed to anthropology because that's what anthropologists generally want to do is learn about people's, you know, culture and society from the perspective of the people who live in it and, you know, take it on its own terms, like not impose other ideas of how things, you know, should be, um, you know, on different groups. And so, um, and so, yeah, so I think that, I think that I sort of, you know, had this, had this interest. And then when I went to college, I thought, oh, I should definitely take some anthropology classes. And so obviously I ended up majoring in it and African-American studies. And, um, and to say, you know, what is anthropology? It's, you know, we have different fields. We have, we study language, there's biological anthropology, archaeology, which is what you talked about with Indiana Jones as the kind of the, as a, you know, popular culture image. But archaeology is also a very, it's a very kind of public face of anthropology because you read a lot about these digs of people like digging up you know, different societies and like the, in the antiquity and in the ancient world and things like that. Um, but I'm actually a social um, and cultural anthropologist, or, or there's also social and cultural anthropology, which is kind of where I fall into it. And we study um, the patterns, like patterns of behavior, cultural meanings, norms and values of, you know, of living people, of like people who are alive today, um, you know, interacting with each other in, in the world, um, uh, in, in, you know, in a particular site. So that's, that's what we tend to do as social and cultural anthropologists. Yeah. Thank you for that comprehensive answer. I think uh, when I think about anthropology, I think of it as having an overlap with a lot of other disciplines like history, historical archeology, span 
as this overlap with history and um, even culture, cultural studies. So I think it's a such a broad discipline. But to put you in the hot seat for a second, I have to mention that article that's been circulating on social media, wherein we don't we don't get need to get into the details, but it seems like anthropology as a discipline is kind of taking a beating over the last week in regards to the article where a researcher was engaged in ethnographic methods and looking at Japanese culture. And um, the, the article was um, published by this researcher has created kind of a stir on social media. But the thing I notice is that people were not, you know, they were attacking this researcher and saying, you know, this article should have never been published. But there's also an underlying critique of anthropology as a discipline. I know in this interview, with this interview coming up, I was just thinking, huh, that's just an interesting uh, conversation that's been circulating. So defend your discipline. Why study anthropology? (laughs) (laughs) I know there's a great reason why we should, but I just, you know, folks were like, you know, disband anthropology. We don't need it anymore. I was like, wait a minute, this is getting a little ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So with that article, um, I think that I haven't, I haven't read the article. I've seen the Twitter um, commentary on it. Um, I know very little about the researcher and and things. I've also seen people say. How is how is ethnography being conflated with anthropology in you know in this whole thing? Because to to some I've seen people also say like there's actually there's possibly not anthropologists necessarily involved in <laughs> in the research. Um, right. I think they were just I think they were just ethnographers. So because other disciplines do ethnography, like sociology does ethnography, media studies does ethnography, um, education scholars use ethnography. Um, and I know this because I teach ethnographic research methods. And so I have a variety of different students in my class from, from a variety of different disciplines. So I know that other disciplines use ethnography. Um, I think that anthropology has been, we've been kind of engaged in different discussions, um, that are, that are ongoing about, about race in, in anthropology. And, um, gosh, I don't even, it's like, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think, I think, (laughs) I mean, I think that there's, there's like the, to a certain extent, many people who I, who I have, who I know in the kind of the, like the association of black anthropologists and kind of other, um, other, I'm thinking of other events, which was like, let let anthropology burn like there was that um uh kind of you call it like a webinar um and then recently at the last AAA there was a discussion about kind of like race and anthropology during the I guess the presidential lecture um you know people have been have been talking about the disciplines sort of complicity with um or the discipline as a like a white space um, the discipline as, you know, complicit within like colonialism and, you know, ongoing structures of, of inequality. Um, and so, so this is, this is definitely a discussion that's been happening, you know, in, in anthropology and we're relatively generally, I mean, we, we do have like this self-reflexivity where we do kind of where the individual is encouraged to look at that, look at themselves as, as a researcher and ask why they are the ones who should be doing this research and to think about, um, you know, to think about, does this research actually need to be done? Is it actually contributing to uh, greater knowledge of a particular, you know, group? Could it be harmful to the group or to the researcher? I mean, these are all questions that at least I talk about in my classes when I teach ethnographic research methods. And I know other people do too, because I've read, um, I've read people talking about this. So that, you know, these are, there are all kinds of different, I think, conversations that we have in ethics, right? That's a, that's a definitely a topic that we, 
you know, talk about. So yeah, so there's all kinds of, I think, conversations that we've been having in anthropology that I think don't, I don't know that they necessarily come to the surface when this kind of like thing happens. And then, and then I think too, like, like I said, like people have been wondering like how, how we got, I I think that this kind of paper, like it dredges up all of these different issues that, you know, that have been happening in, in anthropology. Um, And so perhaps it's also a moment again for us to think about ourselves and how we're perceived. Um, and you know why? Why we're even? Why we're being, you know, brought into this as well? No, no. I think you raise a lot of good questions about not only your discipline, but this whole question of ethics and the role of the researcher, but also the fact that gets us to our next question about methods that other disciplines use ethnographic methods in their work, and um, something you know you're using in this book that we're uh, leading to talk about uh, regarding methods. What are your, what's your perspective on autoethnography? I think there is a big part of this conversation about this particular article was a conversation about autoethnography and uh, ethnographic methods as well. So can you talk a little bit about the methods that you use in your own work in this book in particular? Yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, ethnographic research methods are pretty uh, close to my heart in that I, like I said, I teach I teach ethnographic research methods to undergraduates and and graduate students, um, and and obviously I use them in my own research. I don't. Um, I think I think autoethnography is a really valuable um, method of of doing ethnography. It's important again with that self reflexivity um, for the researcher to you know think about themselves as well. Um, but again, you always have to just keep that question of ethics also at the forefront of your mind and wonder, you know, what is it that you're engaged in and, you know, why, um, why, why are you doing it? Um, but ethnography generally explores cultural, you know, and social groups from like their own point of view, um, the point of view of the people who are actually members of those social groups. Um, it's also kind of a, it can be a description of a particular group. And so, and you can use many different kind of methods within ethnography. So you can use like interviews, sound recordings, um, participant observation, you know, visual renderings of different, uh, of different scenes. You know, there's a variety of different ways that we try to, um, document the social life, right? Because ethnography usually is also examining life as it's unfolding in front of you as a researcher, you know, with, with living people engaged in, you know, whatever it is that they're, that they're doing and whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're looking at. So for example, for me, um, I use participant observation and I take field notes and I, I do this when people are, for example, making their programming. I, go with them to, so I, I look at, for example, in my book, this YouTube show um, produced in, in Brazil. And so in Rio de Janeiro, I went with the family and I uh, accompanied them as they recorded an episode. I, um, you can sometimes take on a role or not, but I just tried to help out whenever I could, but I, you know, just went with them as they were recording different takes and different um, different parts of, a, of the episode that they were producing. And, um, and then I wrote everything down. I, doc- I, you know, afterwards I documented everything that I saw that happened, um, with my, uh, you know, using in, in my field notes. Right. Um, I then also did an interview with, with this particular family about the program that they produce. Um, and then I did interviews as well with other black media producers, about the programs that they produce. I asked them what was their aim in producing these programs. I asked them about their backgrounds, the training that they had in media production. And I asked them also about like the difficulties that they faced in producing this media. Just so these are just some examples of the questions that I would ask around producing interviews or doing interviews. And then I also looked at the media itself and I looked at the kind of I I did a textual analysis on the media to look at the kind of meanings that this media was communicating um, and the kind of 
uh, messages in a way that the that the narratives were uh, were communicating really about Black people and identity. And I was interested in how these these narratives and how what this media communicated, how it meshed with larger uh, ideas that Black social movements were communicating in Brazil, um, or how it meshed with like what. Uh, national racial dynamics also advocated. So I used a, a variety of different different methods to try to get at, you know, what what kind of stories and what kind of narratives about Black people, you know, would Black people produce if they had the like time and resources uh, to you know to to produce their own media. Now, I, I like your discussion as well of the different approaches that, you know, are involved in ethnographic methods. The, it, it raises some questions about, it, it, it makes me think about oral history and how the, the one concern that gets raised there, among others, is will someone you're interviewing, if you're using that approach, and you're an outsider, come into a community to interview will that person necessarily be more or less likely to be truthful with you if you're an outsider versus being an insider is, is one question that comes up with, with oral history mm-hmm. using the interview, the oral history interview. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you went over the different approaches that are used within the larger method of um, ethnographic methods. So appreciate that. So let's look, more directly at your book. And when we think of this phrase, black lives matter uh, or black lives, you know, visualizing black lives, which is in your, your, um, in your title, we, we often turn to North America and think about the race issues and movements in North America. But I think, you know, you're looking at this obviously from a perspective of Brazil Uh, But it also reminds us that Black movements have global dimensions. And um, so tell us about the the main premise and argument of your your book, Visualizing Black Lives. Yeah. um, So the the main premise of the article or of of the book is... um, the subject of the book is media, you know, produced by Afro-Brazilians. And so I'm looking at short films, television programs, YouTube videos, graffiti, you know, for example. So various media produced by Afro-Brazilians. And I'm arguing that this media foments anti-racism in Brazil. And I argue that Afro-Brazilians are in producing their own media. They insist on, you know, they basically insist on their own participation in producing media. So they're questioning who controls media production and why, and they're advocating for their rights to produce media. And so in Brazil, um, where the, so Brazil is, is, is known to have the largest black population outside of Africa. And um, most recently the census found that, um, at least 50% of the population was um, of African descent. And so, but you don't see these numbers show up, uh, you know, when you look at media producers um, in in Brazil. So many times, like with film producers, I think Afro-Brazilians might be 1% of the film producers for commercially um, released films, for example. And so I I say that when Afro-Brazilians... they're, they're doing this kind of independently and, you know, they're, they're not doing this as part of like a larger, usually studio system or a larger, um, network, uh, like television network. They're producing these things, um, outside of these more formal, I guess, or more, I don't know, mainstream, um, media networks. They're insisting on their own, uh, on their right to, to produce media, um, in, in Brazil. And I'm also arguing that, you know, in producing this media, they're also, you know, insisting on ascribing meanings to their own Black identities through media production. And again, like I said, like much of the media is not produced by Afro-Brazilians. And it and much many, many of the images of Black people in Brazil 
uh, present these kind of harmful stereotypes of Black characters. And so Afro-Brazilian media producers, um, I argue, they're expanding on this, on what's already present, um, and they're trying to make more complex images of like of black protagonists and and black life. And so I, I, you know, I argue that they're that in doing so, they're, you know, asserting their right to shape these meanings um, surrounding blackness in Brazil through media production. So you raise a few important points here, thinking about the black population in Brazil in terms of the numbers, the sheer numbers of uh, Africans who arrive in Brazil as a result of the Atlantic slave trade is far greater than the number in terms of percentage that arrive in North America. And yet, when you think about the level of cultural integration of this smaller community in North America, in, ter- in terms of having an influence on larger American culture versus half the population being Black and not having almost any uh, presence in mainstream media is is a very interesting, you know, parallel that that it forces me to think about, and new media in particular, the use of new media mm-hmm. by Black communities, like using YouTube, handheld camera, the iPhone, um, and it makes me think about how hip hop artists in particular. I remember this song that came out a couple of years ago called Film the Police. And it was basically, you know, a bunch of uh, hip-hop artists got together and created this song called Film the Police and just basically using it to tell people, you know, if you're stopped by the police, you should also always be filming and make sure you upload that video if something happens, you know, in the stop by police. And I remember that just some years ago. It makes me think of the work that you're doing here with your book and looking at Brazil. So tell us a little bit about, so I know there's one, at the beginning, there is this family that is creating media content and connecting it to our conversation about methods and the different methods that you use. Can you tell us a little bit about your informants or the community informants that you you know, came across in your study and interacted with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many of them were, um, they were all all Afro-Brazilian, all identified as Black, and they were uh, filmmakers, television producers, other media workers. Uh, many of them had already worked in mainstream media, and they found that they couldn't really diversify the media in ways that they wanted. So many of them, um, you know, for example, might work at a newspaper and they're trying to get a story on like hip hop in the newspaper, which kind of refers to the point that you just said about, you know, about hip hop being really important, um, you know, cultural force. And, um, and hip hop in Brazil is also very, um, very important and very, uh, very visible. And, um, and so, you know, say a, a black journalist might try to get a story on hip hop, for example, maybe a particular hip hop artist or a show or something, you know, in a newspaper. And they're constantly thwarted by the editors and told, oh, no, you know, this won't really, you know, no, our audience wouldn't be interested, things like that. And this is this is sort of a constant barrier that they would face with with a variety of different kinds of, you know, of stories. They might say, like. Let me try to get this black doctor I know to, you know, in the newspaper as like an expert, right? We're trying to interview a doctor about X, Y, Z. Oh, I know this black doctor. Let me try to get them in. And they're, and they're sort of said, oh, no, we're going to use this other person. So, so there are a variety of different ways. They're trying to sort of diversify the media in, in the mainstream media where they work. And it's just not, it just wasn't, wasn't working. And so many of them would then move into kind of alternative media where that had a focus on Afro-Brazilians. And so some of them worked exclusively in media produced by and for Afro-Brazilians. Um, like there's a magazine in Brazil called Race Magazine. And it's um, it's like a, I kind of 
compare it sort of to like the, like the Ebony magazine, if you will, of, of Brazil, but it's nationally circulated and directed toward a black audience. And so, you know, people would, some people would work there. Other people would continue working in mainstream media, but then they would work in alternative Afro-Brazilian media, um, kind of in their spare time. And so I knew someone, for example, his name was Oswaldo Faustino, and he was a, a journalist for a major, uh, newspaper in Sao Paulo. And he also, you know, wrote a column on black history for race magazine. And he, you know, was involved with this black television network that I did research with. Um, And he's just generally involved in a lot of like black culture and politics in in the city of Sao Paulo. And so, um, so a lot of people were like that. And the family that I talked with, that I talked with um, earlier, they, they made the YouTube program. The father was an actor on uh, TV Globo, which is like a major television network in Brazil. But then he also made this YouTube program, again, on the side, which was far more critical and, you know, really talked about like race and, and racism, you know, on the side. So that was that was what many of them did. They were also all um, trained in media production. They had gone to, to college. They had degrees in journalism and television production. And many of them, um, you know, they really just wanted to tell stories that centered uh, the experiences that that they had had, you know, as people of African descent in Brazil. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of parallels, obviously, the, the point of, you know, I, this is making me think of a lot of points of parallel, um, not just, you know, beyond the Americas, really. Um, similar movements in, you know, Europe, for instance, especially during the Black Lives Matter uh, movement in general. But what, so we, so we raised this question of race in Brazil. And one of my questions was, are, are Brazilians in denial uh, about their society in terms of the um, Blackness, race, denial about race? What does it mean to be black in Brazil, mm-hmm. for instance? Who is black in Brazil mm-hmm. versus in North America, right? That qu- answer to that question might be a little different. So it feeds into this this question about racial democracy and um, racial categories. Can we talk a little bit about who is black and racial categories in Brazil for our audience to kind of understand the differences between North America and Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really important question, um, and I thank you for for asking it because you're right. Brazil has has been has understood itself and has been understood, you know, outside of Brazil as what you said, a racial democracy. And so, what that means is that racial democracy is the idea that. The Brazilian population is a result of mixture between Africans, um, Europeans, and indigenous people. And so the idea is that, you know, usually like during, during the idea is that during slavery, um, all of these different groups uh, sort of mixed together, um, had relationships with one another, and out of, out of which, out of that mixture came the sort of contemporary, you know, Brazilian population. Um, and so it's a result of like past mixture, but also ongoing mix- mixture. And the idea is that, you know, because of all of this mixture, there is no color line. And because there's no color line, you know, there's also, you know, no, no racism in Brazil, because how, how can there be racism if you don't actually have these stable racial categories. Um, and so that's, so that's the idea. And so people tend to talk about like this cordial racism in Brazil, if it does exist and people, and the way that this tends to operate is that, um, there's, there's, there can be very little attention given to race. So the government wouldn't have, you know, programs based on, you know, based on race. Um, the, if people want to talk about racism, um, people, like researchers have written about how there's kind of a silence around even talking about racism. Um, And so if people kind of even want to talk about it, like people, people have experienced racism, like people of African descent have experienced racism and 
you know, they might say, for example, oh, I went to, I went, I saw a help wanted sign. I went to look for a job. I, I walked in and they told me that, oh, the job has been filled. But then my neighbor went the very next day to the very same job. And my neighbor is, in, you know, is very light or basically white. And, and they were told, oh, sure, here's an application. You can, you know, fill it out. This no problem, you know. And so people talk about these kinds of experiences and, you know, but then, but then they might be silenced and people will say, oh, no, no, that wasn't racism. No, 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 that wasn't, you know, that, no, that's just because you went and, you know, you, maybe you just didn't look appropriate or something like that. Um, and so people will kind of like brush it off. And so that's what, that's what researchers refer to, refer to as kind of this like silence around, around racism. So um, so that's the, the idea of like the, the racial dynamics. And then there's also this idea that there are um, just um, multiple, like kind of hundreds of racial categories in Brazil that people use to, to like categorize people according to color. Um, researchers have found that, you know, there are probably more categories than in the United States, but there aren't as many categories as, as you know, what has been thought, like hundreds of categories. So people tend to use, um, there, there is, there is a, you know, there are categories for like white, um, black, and then there's kind of a brown category, which is an intermediary category. Um, and then you have like indigenous people. And then there are also um, like Asian people, people of Asian descent, like Sao Paulo has the largest Japanese population outside of Japan. So there's a large um, Asian population in Sao Paulo, for example. Um, and so there are other people too. There's also like Lebanese people in Japan. I mean, in, um, in Sao Paulo, sorry. So, you know, so there's a variety of other, you know, other people in the mix too. Um, but I think that this idea of what it means to be black has really been raised by the black movement. And they've, you know, they've talked about like, you know, like people, you know, people of African descent, and, you know, there are people who, you know, identify as black, who have families who are black. Um, and when I would ask people, for example, who I interviewed, why they identified as black, many people would say, oh, because my, my parents are black and my grandparents are black. Um, you know, they've, they've, they're, they're descendants of, of, of black people. And, and as you, as you said as well, um, you know, Brazil, Brazil received the largest amount of, of people during the transatlantic slave trade. Um, it, it has the largest, you know, number of people of African descent. And, 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 the, and those people have also kind of known that they are of African descent. Um, so what, what racial democracy in a way does is it um, sort of distorts the knowledge that people have of themselves, right? Like right, people sure. have understood themselves to, to be black. It's not that that's, you know, that's not necessarily gone away. Um, and then, and then it also, and then you also have the black movement coming in and sort of insisting on this term of like, there is a black population in this country and they are being, you know, being discriminated against. And so, um, and so there's a lot of back and forth, but to this question of like, are Brazilians in, in denial, possibly, you know, they have been, but I think now there's, there's been a lot of noise and a lot of changes have, have occurred. Um, and so this, this denial is slowly, um, uh, you know, uh, fading away, um, with the, with the vocal, like social movements that are really kind of drawing attention to this issue. Right. And I think your point about making connection to the social movements and the media playing a role in making blackness more visible, you know, the core, one of your core uh, themes here is how these communities are using media to make blackness more visible on their own terms. You know, this is just a very powerful uh, argument, I think. So let's get into the different ways. Give us some um, case study examples from your book about the different ways that Afro-Brazilians have found to produce to produce their own media, because I'm assuming, obviously, to iPhones are expensive, right? Even if it's just a matter of, hey, I have this video, I've recorded it with my iPhone, and to have some access to technology, obviously, costs. Mm -hmm. You know, so get get 
us into this conversation about how were they able to produce this media, what kind of media uh, the different groups that you look at were able to produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll use the example of TV de Genshi or Our TV in, in English would be the translation. Um, so this was a black television network in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It was the first... Uh, first black television network in Brazil. It was started in 2005 by uh, someone named Nichinho. He's a, a celebrity. Um, he's famous in Brazil for singing Pagoji, which is kind of a form of samba. And basically he wanted to start this television network in order to produce more uh, programming and more content around um, for black people in Brazil. And he did it at a time uh, and so it was 2005, and this was a time when there was a lot of um, kind of a lot of energy around kind of anti racism and anti racist movements in Brazil. Um, the government had just signed what was called Law 10.639, which mandated the teaching of Afro Brazilian and African history and culture in primary schools. So um, and so that's that's just one one example. But there was there was a lot of you know momentum at the time, and he wanted to sort of tap into this momentum in the space of media and produce this this uh, network that would you know that would harness that energy into the visual realm. And so he started this um, the network, and and you asked this question about like the cost and it's expensive, and you're right. Like how do you just start, how do you just start producing this media? How do you just start, you know, uh, how do you just start a television network when, you know, you may not have the, the capital. So what he did, which was, which I found really interesting was he, he managed to get resources from Angola and Angolan investors in the, in the television network. And one of the ways uh, he did this, so, so Angola and Brazil have a connection in that they were both colonized by the Portuguese. And so there's actually a lot of connections between Angola and Brazil. And you find in Brazil, uh, Angolans and, and, and Brazilians also go to go to Angola, right? So there's actually this, um, I don't know, South-South connection between the two countries. And um, and so the I think the Angolan uh, government um, they were looking to produce media for Angolans in, in Angola. And one of the ways they thought they could do this was to use the infrastructure of Brazil and um, fund this black television network in Sao Paulo and have them produce the content and then also air, air the content then as well in, in Angola. So that was the idea for that connection. And so they sent uh, you know resources uh, in order to to produce the network, but um, I think there were definitely some you know issues with this, and that possibly Brazilians may not know what Angolans want to see on on television. Um, at, you know, there so there are different like snafus with that with that plan that I that I do talk about in the book. But um, but that was that was how you know he got he got the capital, and then he had. Um, a television network, uh, the actual infrastructure came from a television network. He was in an old studio that, that had been run by TV Globo, which is like a national television um, network in Brazil. And he hired a lot of media programmers, like black media producers who had, like I said, worked in mainstream media. So he he got for this woman named Conceição Lorenzo to run the run the network. And she had run race magazine prior to that. And then she had also had plenty of experience working in media as well and in other forms. Um, he also high, he got Oswaldo Faustino, who I'd mentioned, who wrote uh, columns on the side on black history. He, he worked at TV de Genshi, um, at, at RTV, the television network. Um, and so he, he got, there were other people. He, he hired this man named Flavio Cajansa who had worked in radio and television in, in Brazil. So he amassed this group of people um, to, you know, to produce and carry out the, the television programming on the network. And, um, and just to give you an example, one thing I talk about in the book is how, they wanted to sort of present an image of 
um, inspiration, I guess, or uplift for Afro-Brazilian people. And so their idea was to present in, in some of the programs like Black doctors, Black lawyers, Black professional workers. And so um, there was one program where it was like an interview program. Um, the program was hosted by a man who was a, who was a judge. Um, his name was Dr. Edgio Silva. And he himself was a very visible black judge. He had also run for public office in Brazil. And so he hosted this program. Um, so he himself would have been like a reference or an example like of like black success. And then he also interviewed other uh, people like him. Um, he called upon his network and interviewed other, you know, black lawyers and doctors and, and people like that um, on the program. And the idea was to also communicate to the audience um, ideas about like their rights. It was to communicate, you know, about health and really to, to give the audience also resources like for their own lives, right. And for their own, like to help them, uh, you know, with their own agency, for example. So for example, he, he had a segment where he had this, this, uh, it was a black judge who was like adjudicating a case between uh, a restaurant employee who was suing his, uh, his boss for back wages and um, and the restaurant employee uh, won uh, because he was uh, he was terminated without then being paid and um, and he won the case and so this was a, an example of how people uh, you know can use the the j- judicial system to you know to get the the money you know that they that they are legally you know <laughs> uh, have a right to. Um, in the system. So that's, that's just one example, but that's, but that's what they did. And I, and I argue in the chapter that they were kind of presenting also this very like middle-class, you know, image of uplift for, you know, for Afro-Brazilians um, on that, you know, on that channel. And in doing that, they were also kind of arguing that, you know, there's this image that black people in Brazil are, are all poor. Um, and so they're sort of complicating this image of black people in Brazil. And they're saying, well, we're also like middle-class, we're also professionals. You know, we also have these kinds of, um, you know, the, this, th- we do this kind of work as well. And so, you know, you can't just pigeonhole us into this one, you know, one area. Yeah, so your larger argument is about how they're able to retain control and, and represent more positive images of blackness through these um, various forms of media, which makes me think about, you know, so they get this re this money monetary resource from Angola and there's this connection and having access to money and resources. The example I think of is Tyler Perry, but Tyler Perry, I mean, it's a whole nother show, right? (laughs) He has money, he has resources, but is he, producing more positive images of blackness most people would say well no he's he's generating more stereotypes or playing into stereotypes regardless of his access to money and resources and it but it also makes me think about how Aaron Magruder you know used a cartoon to criticize black media moguls like Robert L Johnson who was the founder of BET, mm-hmm. uh, but the cartoon Boondocks has a, char- a Johnson-like character, which you know Magruder criticizes and uses the cartoon to, to be critical of um, BET and Johnson. Mm-hmm. So that you know, it's made me think about your larger thesis of these producers saying you know, all black people are not poor. They are actually also middle-class and, you know, using the media in a strategic way. So it's, it's you know, making me think about um, other examples in the North American context. But tell us a little bit more about how women play a role in, in as producers of this media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, women were really instrumental in producing the media that I was looking at. Um, so that, like I said before, like the, the television network was run by um, a woman, uh, Conceição Lorenzo, and she basically, um, she did a lot to, uh, you know, 
to to get the the, the network together. I mean, basically the work much of the work fell on her shoulders to actually then run the network. So she was the one who you know came up with like the slate of programming um, with with other producers. Um, she she oversaw everything. She um, you know also brought people in and hired people and um, oversaw the you know the production production schedules as well of the, of the programming. So she was really very much, um, the head of that, you know, of that network. And then also there was another woman who I, uh, interviewed during the programming, which was, um, Juliana Vincenci, and she's a filmmaker in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And she, uh, basically, after after college, she had worked again also in film production, like in sort of more like more commercial film production. But she decided to start her own production house in um, in São Paulo, Brazil, as a you know at, at a relatively like younger age in her twenties. And so she um, has her own production company in in São Paulo. It's in it's located kind of in a residential house. Um, in a particular like residential neighborhood. Um, I've, I've been there. I went there to, to interview her about the, the film that she made and, um, and her, in her production house and her production company, she oversees the production of a variety of different films and television series and um, music videos. She does all kinds of work in that, in that production house. But the film that I look at in the, in the book is called colors and boots. And it was the film that she made. It was like actually her thesis film for college um, where the, the film is about this young black girl and the, and, and so the film makes this black girl, the protagonist of the, of the film. It's a short film. It's about 20 minutes long, maybe. And basically it's about this girl who's, who watches this popular children's television network in Brazil during the eighties and nineties. It was called the Shusha show. And so this black girl constantly watches this show. Um, the star of the show is named Shusha and, um, and she has these backup dancers, Shusha and all the backup dancers are white. They they're blonde. They tend to be blonde, have like light eyes, um, and basically, and, and, it, and it's, you know, all of them. And they wear these particular costumes. They look like uh, kind of like a high school marching band costume sort of thing um, in, in the United States. But they're, um, they, so they have, my, my point is they have this particular look. And the girl, this young black girl tries to emulate the look in her clothing and in her costuming. And she dances, you know, to the show. But, but the idea is that she can never fully inhabit the world of Shusha um, because she doesn't, she's not, she's not white. She doesn't look like any, any of these, you know, any of these people. She also has very long curly hair. Um, that is, uh, also sort of kind of wild. Um, also like around her, it's, it goes, it goes everywhere. Um, her, her hair. And, um, and again, it, it kind of exaggerates this difference between her and these, like the slick blonde hair of the women, in the Shusha show. So my point is that the, the, the film was about, was about that. And it's about kind of like this pain of not being able to join the show. She eventually, she tries to straighten her hair, but it doesn't, it doesn't really work. And then eventually she learns that, you know, she'll kind of never inhabit that world and she needs to really gain another perspective on herself and her, um, and her, and get her own view. And how does she, you know, how does she see things? And, um, and I think that it's important to think about this because it's a, the, the film has a black girl that's a protagonist. Um, and it talks about, you know, some of the issues like of, of racism that black girls would face um, with the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a film about the media. And, um, and I think that it's important that, you know, it comes from a, a black woman who's telling the story. And when I asked her about the film, you know, she also talked about her own, her own memories growing up, like she drew from her own experiences to, you know, to put that film together. And I think that, you know, these are not stories that circulate broadly in Brazil. Like I said, there can be silence around racism. People don't really always want to talk about it, but, you know, with a film like this, she raises this issue. She like dramatizes it, presents it in a, in a visual narrative. That's easy to, 
you know, to watch, um, you know, anyone can view it. And I think it, it's, so it's doing this important work of like raising this issue of, of this kind of, kind of racism and that black children are, are, are also facing it. And so, um, so that's some of the kind of work that I think black women were, were doing with the, in the realm of media production in the, in the book. Yeah, and the obvious connection between, you know, the intersection of, of race and gender and also class, right, in terms of who who gets to own this media and who gets to produce it. It's tied to issues of class and access to to money or and or wealth. So let's get to our last question here. It's a very fascinating conversation. I think it forces us to look at parallels, you know, between Black movements in other countries and around the world. But in, in what ways have Afro-Brazilian media producers then expanded the arena of anti-racist um, struggles? You know, how have they used this media to kind of expand this conversation, these social movements? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that in, in Brazil, the Black movement has been very vocal since at least like the has been sort of publicly vocal since at least the late 1970s in, you know, insisting that, you know, blackness exists as a category. And, and I think this is one of the differences kind of between Brazil and the the United States and in the United States, I think like activists don't have to necessarily um, in, don't have to convince people that, that blackness exists, right. That, that, that a black population exists. Uh, People, people, I think know that in the United States. Um, Whereas in Brazil, Black movements have to sort of start from another point where they have to say, you know, like we are black. There, there are black people in this country. We are, you know, a constituency and a, and a group. Um, they have to sometimes convince people of African descent to identify as black um, and to, to kind of raise this consciousness about racism and and racial structures in the in the country. So you know, they have to do a lot of work um, around consciousness raising in a way to fight against what we already talked about, which is like the the effects in a way of like racial democracy, which can like um, silence, like I said, these, these, these larger issues. Um, so the black movement has really been a vocal, like a voice for anti-racism and, um, you know, for black consciousness in the country. And I think that this media you know, picks up, it taps into that, um, that energy that the black movement has generated. Um, and, and I talk about this in the book as well, because the black movement, I think is the foundation it's foundational to, to these, these media producers, the, the kind of work that the black movement has done has really made possible these other, um, you know, these other kind of offshoots to like take up what they're saying and, put it into the media, put it into visual form. And so that's what I think these media producers are doing. They're, um, you know, bringing this kind of knowledge that, that they have, like these experiences that they've had. They've had these differential experiences of racism, of, you know, racial inequality, um, this like different histories. And they've, and they've brought that, um, you know, to the kinds of, films and videos that they're producing and they and so so in some ways just by like showing frankly just by showing black characters and showing you know black people in in a film even if they don't talk about race and racism um is a challenge to the mainstream media that does not present black people as protagonists right and so in Mm -hmm. you know uh you know in in centering themselves that that is a i think a challenge um, as well as then in raising these issues about, you know, racism and um, insisting on the validity of one's own, you know, experiences and voice um, is also uh, kind of a, a challenge and uh, a challenge to the to the mainstream racial dynamics in Brazil, as well as as well as mainstream media. So I, I really think they, you know, take up this call of, of black social movements to insist on, you know, centering black people and inserting black people into all of these different areas of, of life in, in Brazil. Yeah. I think what you've uh, revealed to us here probably 
certainly suggests that, you know, black media moguls in the U.S. might turn to Brazil and learn, you know, a few things about, you know, the way in which they have found a way to advance the black struggle through through various forms of media, you know, I think is very important work. So lastly, what is next for you in terms of uh, current research? Uh, so I am working on a book on the, it picks up where kind of this conversation uh, left off where I'm looking at how Afro-Brazilians engage with African-Americans, but through sort of through kind of popular culture. So I'm popular culture and like performances and, and ideas from African-Americans. And so uh, just to kind of uh, give an illustration of this, um, Afro-Brazilians will will tend to refer to African-Americans within their own activism, and they'll use it to to call into question Brazil's own ideas of its own racial exceptionalism. So in Brazil, people will tend to say, oh, but the United States is more racist than Brazil. Um, You know, we don't have, we don't have the kind of racism here that they have in you know, in the United States and Afro-Brazilians will sort of again, challenge that. And they'll say, actually, um, that's not true. You know, either we, we do have the same kind of racism, um, or, and sometimes they'll say possibly Brazil is, is worse. And so for example, like when Obama was elected president of the United States, you know, they would say, um, well, we don't have a black, we don't have many black politicians in Brazil at all, but you look at the United States and they have a black president you know, how is that possible? You know, Brazil is not as, you know, progressive as it, as it thinks it is in the area of politics, for example. So they're using the United States as this, as this counterpoint to um, put more pressure on Brazil and challenge its own ideas of itself as, um, as racially exceptional. So that's the, the next project. It's book project. Yes. Larger book project. Book project. Oh, nice. Well, Reagan, thank you so much for joining me today on this week in Black History, Society, and Culture. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.